Jingi walla blagami arako dogum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bogube blagame. Thank you, Delta K, a Rakul Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Conversations from Byron, a podcast series featuring writers from the 2020 festival lineup. In this session, Hayley Katzen talks with Sarah Armstrong about her new book, Untethered, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Hello, my name's Sarah Armstrong. I'm a writer based near Byron Bay and I'm delighted to be speaking today to Hayley Katzen about her memoir, Untethered, which tells her story of growing up in an intellectual urban Jewish family in South Africa, moving to Australia where she became a lawyer and legal academic, then finding herself today living on a pretty remote, off-the-grid cattle farm with her farmer girlfriend, Jen. Haley's book is a thoughtful, clear-eyed exploration of her search for home and a sense of belonging and offers the reader a powerful and candid depiction of Australian life. And this conversation between Haley and I would, of course, ordinarily be taking place in one of the marquees set in the lush fields where the Byron Writers' Festival is held each year, but sadly not this year due to coronavirus. But we're gathering and we are speaking and sharing stories via podcast instead, and I'm so looking forward to this conversation. And I should say that Hayley and I have actually known each other for close to 20 years, and for many of those years we've been in a writing group together, so I've had the privilege of seeing this book, Untethered, take shape over many years. Hayley, let's start with you leaving South Africa when you were 22. Why did you leave and what were you hoping to find? In Australia. Great place to start at the very beginning, which is always an interesting thing when one writes memoir. Where does one begin? Um, I came as part, I suppose, of a family migration. Um, It was the beginning of 1989 when I arrived in Australia, but of course we'd been granted permanent residence just before that, six months earlier, and applied in 86 when South Africa was in under a state of emergency. And we were dealing with the draconian apartheid government uh, forcing people away from their homes in some of the townships close to Cape Town, which is where I was at university. So my political education was very much in the 85, 86, 87, 88. And that was when the ANC was, of course, banned. But the UDF, the United Democratic Front, was um, around at that time. And I worked for a volunteer welfare organisation called Shawco, a student organisation, and we provided relief in townships. And I also was part of running um, an education program because a lot of the students were boycotting school. So we would take a busload of university students into the township and do classes to try and keep everyone going. Um, but back home in Johannesburg, my Jewish family were feeling increasingly uncertain, as they'd done in the 60s after Sharpville and the 70s after the Soweto riots. And I don't know if this is a particularly Jewish thing, if there is some sense of shallow roots and home not necessarily being so allied to earth and ground, because we've moved around, um, and we diaspora Jews. So what happened for my family is older stepbrothers were you know, going to be subject to conscription 
Um, one didn't want to do that, the other did, but there was still a move to leave the country. Stepfather wanted to go too, my mum begged me to come as well. And it was a dilemma for me, but it was also when my father died very suddenly, the day the permanent residence uh, visas were granted, I just thought I need a passport to peace mm. and to safety. And that's what Australia represented. Mm. You know, really, when you are living in a country where things are precarious, even though you are part of the privileged white minority, it's an awful position to be in because you don't like why you're part of that privileged white minority and you don't know what your future's going to be. And as a young woman studying law in the 80s, I didn't know what part of the world would let me in. And fortunately, through my stepfamily, we'd been able to gain an entree here. So it was a, a dilemma and it continues has continued to plague me always, that sense of leaving the national democratic struggle and not being part of it. But also I took the easy way out, I guess, and I came to live in this country. You spoke about the the Jewish diaspora and in your book you mention your grandmother um, Hadassah and how that you see so many echoes of your story and hers. Can you just tell us a little about her and her story? Hadassah, was di- Hadassah died the year I was born and so I'm named for her. Kind of my anglicised fitting in mother named me Haley rather than Hadassah. Um, but she came from Lithuania in I think about 1912 or so to South Africa which is where all my family all my grandparents are from there and she wound up marrying this man who lived on a farm in the middle of the little Karoo which is a semi-desert area so his uh, my grandfather's family had also come from Lithuania but they'd come as a unit you know I think there were six kids and a mother and father and they'd set up they bought some land it's quite a little enclaves of Jews in the country, even here in Australia. If you go to Broken Hill, I think, you'll find there was once a synagogue and a little enclave of Jews. So too in South Africa. And um, Hadassah married Judah Meir and suddenly found herself living in this middle of nowhere place. And although he had his family, his sister ran a kosher kitchen in the little railway siding hotel, the Volvofontein Hotel. But Hadassah went to live in a house on a farm. And, I mean, my mum wrote this most beautiful piece describing Hadassah's experience of setting a table for tea when there was no one who was going to come for tea. And it's that intense loneliness that one experiences when one lives in places that are more isolated than one is used to. And I suppose I come from a family of chatters, as you can tell, and Hadassah probably was too. And she suddenly had no one to talk and she spoke Yiddish she didn't speak English um so you know by the time my mum went to school they moved to town which was a small country town Utenhag and my grandfather stayed on the farm and every he would come after every Shabbat he would drive to town to see his wife and three children mm. and then he would leave on the Sunday to go back to work and you you after you landed in Sydney you moved after a little while up to the north coast of New South Wales you were a legal academic you met Jen in due course, uh, and you had that experience yourself then after a few years of being with her, of moving out to live with her and her farm that she'd been on for some time, off the grid, quite remote. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what that was like for you. I mean, you you write about it in the book so beautifully, and I felt for you so much in describing when you first got there and struggling with so many of the tasks of living on the land and struggling 
fitting into that role of the farmer's wife. Um, can you tell us a bit about, about that and how hard it was? Well, it's such a, um, a long journey to my actually being there and feeling I'd suddenly got the mantle of farmer's wife, not my choice. Um, for five years, Jen and I were together and I lived in town and had my own home and community and job and all of that. And Jen was on the farm and I swore I would never live out there. And then um, in 2002, everything burned down in a very big bushfire. Um, we've become more used to them these days, but back then it was quite a, you know, a massive time and moment. And the process of helping Jen clean up the site and then um, her decision to rebuild, um, in a way, knit me to the place and led me to go back out there with her. In the years when I was just a visitor, it was this kind of rural idyll. And it was just so romantic. Can you picture it? You know, you drive out after teaching a late class at the law school in Lismore, you drive out to the bush, and suddenly there you are on this block where not a human comes near you unless you've got an arrangement, really. So we had we had a wonderful few years, and, you know, I'm not a girl who's gone camping, and there we were suddenly in swags and having Billy tea and down at the creek. But suddenly, when I landed up living there, bizarre choice, according for most people who knew me at the time suddenly it was like oh my god what is my role here um I, I i do have a thing about feeling like jobs and work make places home or help me find my belonging in places it was the same when i migrated to sydney the same when i moved to the north coast even in activism i felt unless i have work i don't know my place and so suddenly there i am with jen I'd kind of thought, oh, well, maybe here I'll, in the middle of nowhere, I'll try and write for the first time after having written law mainly, um, and then a play. But once I was there, I kind of, you know, as a new writer, you can't just sit at your desk all the time. And I thought, what am I doing here on the farm? What's um, my role in the drama of the farm, you know, the work of the farm? And Jen would go fencing and I'd try to go with her. And really, I don't have the kind of strength or physical capacity or ability for all those sorts of jobs chopping wood fencing cattle work all of that stuff and it was such a different language for me and I think it is the most humbling experience to you know I've always been able to manage intellectual things but then when when the language is different it's deeply humbling and that's really been my experience at the same time as trying to you know I think that notion of the farmer's wife Although now I'm kind of quite happy and I've just spent the last few weeks making muffins for the fencing crew. But, you know, I didn't want that to be all I was. I was far too young. I was under 40 at the time when I moved out there. And I, I didn't think my work life was over. So to suddenly become someone's other half or the farmer's wife was just an absolute nightmare to me. Um, but, of course, you know, that changes. And I think, you know, the, the reality is I quit a profession, which... Um, I was deeply committed to and passionate about and then opted to change course and go in a creative direction and that's a much harder direction to get the affirmation and approval um, really it's much harder than law to me and so once you're in the middle of nowhere and you're not getting even you know some short stories published isn't a big kind of last one <laughs> so it's easier to feel that one is nothing and one is just allied to this other person's life and I felt like I was losing myself mm. in that process. Mm. The epigraph of the book is a quote from Michel de Montaigne the French philosopher and 
who, fellow who invented the essay. That's right. <laughs> Would you mind reading that to us and just telling us what it means to you, why you chose it? Oh, my hero. I've had a lot of conversations with Montaigne over these years. This is from On the Inconstancy of Our Actions. We are entirely made up of bits and pieces, woven together so diversely and so shapelessly that each one of them pulls its own way at every moment. And there is as much difference between us and ourselves as there is between us and other people. So for me, um, I guess one of the learnings of these years has been multidimensionality. I felt that, you know, particularly moving to live in that area, you know, there I am, a Jewish girl from Johannesburg who's an ex-legal academic, who's a lesbian, um, and kind of not very manual, more intellectual. I felt like I had all these othernesses and outsidernesses, which, you know, are interesting for one in one's own journey of trying to make sense of things. And certainly James Baldwin was a big one for saying, you know, it's good to go away from one's place and have that isolation in order to find who one is without everybody else's expectations. And I think that's a big part of what my story and my learning has been about is others' expectation or one's own expectations of who one is because of where one comes from. So suddenly I'm living in a very different world and I'm somewhat untethered because I have a difficult family story. And my mom is really my primary connection um, from the past. And she and I are often in a bit of a duel around my choices. When I moved to Byron Bay, which really is a cosmopolitan metropolis compared to the farm, my mum said to me, it's not right for someone like you, Hales. Um, so then I think what happened for me over these years, and the book has indeed helped me make sense of that, as have many conversations with my mother, um, but just an acceptance of my multidimensionality. You know, I am not one thing. None of us are one thing. We're all made up of so many of those bits and pieces that Montaigne is talking about, and they they weave shifts and changes as well. You know, I, I'm so conscious how the lens with which I view the world is informed by all those many parts of myself, but also how that lens will consistently keep changing. So, you know, this book ends in 2017. Obviously, I've had quite some life in those three years since the book physically, you know, in, in the story of this book ends. And my lens through all those times keeps shifting. Jen said to me at one point, Hayley, you have to end this book at some point or you'll write it forever. And I think that's the that's the challenge. So it's a sense of duality and a sense of multidimensionality, which is deeply in me, and I think probably in most of us. But because I've had these quite um, diametrically opposed experiences, it's perhaps been um, more of a challenge for me to reconcile and also to find that way to integrate myself so that I no longer feel like I need to hide or cover up the bits of me. I can actually fully be who I am without feeling shame or comparison. Mm. Um, you not only, you know, quote Montaigne, there's uh, some very wise words from Jen in this book, I have to say. <laughs> she is indeed a very wise. I think living on the land helps you have a certain wisdom. Yeah, I really yeah. do. Uh, there's these, these sort of moments when you're, you know, asking about, you know, can we feel at home somewhere even if we feel really different to the people there? And she's just like, they're just your neighbours, Haley. You don't have to marry them. Yeah. It's like she... She comes across as, as having great wisdom, but I also wonder what the process was like for you and for her 
that you had to create a character of her because even though she's a real person, you're still constructing a character for the story. So how was that for you and how has it been for her? Look, I think I'm a character in the story too, as we all are in whatever um, whatever the memoir or essay is. Um, the, this memoir has grown out of essays. So I started writing essay in 2012 and the essay is a form which for me, and I think there's no clarity on what the boundaries of anything are anymore, but for me the essay takes something into a much bigger context and universal meaning and significance. So Jane was used to my writing in that way. And my practice has always been, this is, you know, that we always have tried to include each other in each other's work and interests because we are very different women. And, you know, she's had me in the cattle yards and she's had to listen to my writing. So I would normally come in when I had a piece that I thought was ready and say over a beer in the evening, I would read to her. And really that's how this all my work has gone where I've written about Jen. It did lead us to many interesting conversations, some of them somewhat challenging, as there are, you know, conflicts in our relationship. Um, not big ones, but we've had some moments. And so then that would lead to a whole lot of conversation, which we both probably understand the situation more. Um Jen was extraordinary with this. She's a very extraordinary human. I'm very lucky to have been with her for 22 years. But she she got this notion of being a character very early on. And I think because I've learnt about writing whilst Jen and I have been together and I talk to her about everything I read and write, she really understood that it is a creation on the page. And we found it interesting even in this time since the book's publication where people are very much relating to Jen as that person because it is how people see Jen. But there is so much more Jen too. And I think that's the interesting thing that we keep working with, both she and I, in terms of how we are in this book and how much any work of print can realize who we are as humans mm. we are so multi-dimensional mm. and you know to to write a memoir to write essay is about selection and I've had to select uh, in terms of myself and my story hugely so to in a way have I selected the bits of Jen which move in it um, but she did give me carte blanche and she's been extraordinarily generous and yeah we've both learned a lot in terms of how in a way, I think we all know ourselves deeply, but nobody else knows us that deeply. Like, even though I've loved Jen for all these years, I can't know her as she knows herself the mm. same way she can't know me. Mm. It, it brings sort of that ties in with a section in your acknowledgements where you write, memory is subjective and slippery and experiences like ourselves are complex. This memoir is my subjective and candid telling. It is not journalism or reportage nor oral history. Others may recollect and perceive shared events differently. Um, as a reader, but maybe also as a writer, I go into reading a memoir um, knowing that. I'm wondering why you felt it was important to include that in your acknowledgements. I think one of the most difficult things about memoir and to be honest, I felt I had a little more uh, room to move with essay because I did so often write well beyond myself. And I was always terribly worried that if I wrote a memoir, it would be cast as self-indulgent or, you know, narcissistic or any of those sorts of things. Um, to write about others 
to write about oneself, one writes about others. Montaigne claims that, you know, he is only sharing what is his own. I don't believe that's the case. I think as soon as we write about ourselves, we write about others. And as writers, I think we have a responsibility, um, numerous responsibilities in terms of how we fulfill that. But I'm... It's tricky, and you know there are some things I've not been able to put into the book that I might have. Um, there are, you know, I've had I've had lots of my locals sit on the front veranda and listen as I've read them sections. The fire brigade captain did, and certainly when there is sufficient safety, and I've had various people read it. Unfortunately, my mother read it before she died. When there is safety, we are able to talk and to share and to do that. But that's not always the case. So I felt a need to acknowledge how we all have our own stories and our own interpretations of events. And I think perception is one of the most tricky things, both for the writer and the person written written about. You know, it it goes back to that point about Jen, you know, kind of not always recognising that this is her, even though everybody else recognises it. So I think this whole notion, oh, look, I come from law. It was supposedly objective. You know, my domestic violence report, which was huge, did not have the word I in it once. And then you come to writing in this form, and that's been my journey. It's I've been fascinated by all those dimensions. And now I'm writing with this I all over the place. But what is that I? And, you know, who's I? Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you've mentioned Montaigne, you've mentioned James Baldwin. I'm wondering if there are other writers who have informed this process of writing the memoir and this inquiry, this investigation. I think, um, yeah, there are, there are a great many writers. I, I think when I started reading, I hadn't actually read much nonfiction um, creative nonfiction until I started writing the essay in 2012. But I've, you know, I've been greatly helped by people like Joan Didion. Um, I love her statement in um, her book about her, her her piece about the notebook, where one needs to be on nodding acquaintance with um, oneself from the different pa- pasts. You know, just always, you know, mm. she she is wonderful, and her essay "Goodbye to All That," um, where she talks about goodbye to all that, has been really significant for me but I do think um Eula Biss is one of my heroes um Montaigne, Emerson, Thoreau all those people have been um huge influences but and I've read quite a lot of more experimental um work over the years too like Maggie Nelson you know amazing work I realize that I'm more conventional and I need more of a narrative line so that's kind of come and I you know the other interesting um the place writers have been significant for me. You know, I'm, I, I love wild places and I love nature, but I'm not, um, you know, deeply into identifying as a place writer. But certainly um, the old ways, Robert McFarlane's book, he has this question where he says, um, you know, what do places make of us? And that has been stuck on my wall for all these years because there was something about living in the environment where I've lived for all these last full time for 15 years, part time, you know, for the seven years before that. What has this place taught me? And that's been, you know, place has shaped me. Um, choices, obviously, I've strangely made choices to stay for a long time. But yeah, the place itself and the people who live in those places is what shape us mm. and also what help us try to understand what home and belonging mean for ourselves. So he's be, he was significant in terms of that question. Um, but, yeah, I 
the people who've written about home, like even, you know, recently I read a, um, well, Marilyn Robinson, obviously both in housekeeping and in home. Um, and recently I read a, a Toni Morrison short novella called Home. And I guess I there's Lost in Translation by Eva Hoffman as well, which is a wonderful book about migrants going to Canada, uh, Jewish migrants. And so all those sorts of different dimensions of home and duality and transition and change are the books that have deeply helped me. Because I did an MFA through Hong Kong, most of the faculty were people who had some relationship to Asia but lived in America. So I was exposed to a great deal of American work. But also, you know, I met quite a few Asian writers. And so all those similarities, in a way, just broadened my world and connected my world. Here I am, a South African Australian dealing with duality, and here are these people in America and in Asia. So, you know, from there also, I landed up having um, more references. Mm. Just coming back to that sense of place, in the at the very start of the memoir, you describe the first time that you're driving out to the farm and you see it as tough, the country on the way there is tough, hot, dry, ugly, with bleached paddocks and skinny cows and lonely houses. I I wonder how you see that landscape now when you drive home from the coast and how it is in you and how, how it has changed you, I guess, how it affects you. Yeah, it's, you know, I remember the first time I drove out there was actually with a friend. I'd been invited to Jen's 40th birthday party. I was so excited. And it was so dry. They were in the midst of a really, really bad drought. Um, and I did. I just thought it was ugly and revolting. Um, and also amazing because there were all these lesbians having a party. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think I've watched this landscape change so much over these years. You know, not only have we been through the 2002 bushfire, then we've had more droughts. We've had it, We went through the bushfires last year too. And then you get a flood. And I think it is one of the ways in which this landscape has shaped me and perhaps helped me um, as someone who, you know, likes to kind of have some, uh, not, well, control, but also place and decision-making in my life. It, it has shown me how change is inevitable and how everything in a way is temporary. I mean, there were times last year during the bad drought that I wondered whether it would ever change um, because, you know, droughts are probably much, they are the most devastating <laughs> experiences um, as our fires, as our floods, all the natural disasters. But yeah, I think that landscape, watching it change over the years and also, you know, after the 2002 fire, the clean up and then Jen decided after about a year of living in town with me that she did want to rebuild. And I did all that with her as well. We milled the timber on the property you know, I she got uh, a couple of the local blokes, um, helped her build to lock up. A friend of ours had designed the house. And then I helped her finish off. I didn't realize that was actually the big job. Um, so, you know, that knitted me to that place mm-hmm. in a very surprising way. But Sarah, not in the kind of way where I feel I could live nowhere else. I certainly now, when I drive back there with after being at the coast to get, you know, to, to visit my, you know, my friends who've been my lifeblood so often, um, I get this lovely surge of, oh, here we are, home stretch. I know this road now. It's windy. It's tiring. Give me a bus any day, really, rather than driving for two and a half hours on my own at dusk. Um, but, yeah, there is a sense of, oh, good, I'm home, and I open the gate, and I know it, and I smell it, and I know it, and I walk that property, and I know it because I have walked it 
for 22 years. Um, so there is a deep knowing, and this house is a deep knowing. Really, it to to create one's own place from the base in this way, to fight to protect one's own place, to feel a certain safety now that I am not terrified of that sound on the roof at the night or that critter that might run across my feet. All of those things are what kind of lead to home and so to the local community. You know, now I know people and people understand me more and I suppose there are stories all the way through as I drive, as I walk, as I sit on that front veranda. And those are all the parts of myself and of Jen and our lives and all the people who are part of our lives. But also, it's not the home is inside me. It's because I can be my full self in that place now. And I'm not trying to be the cattle farmer. Sure, I'll help in the yards and I'll do the work that I need to do. And I'll now happily cook for everybody and I love it now. Um, but I'm not trying to be someone I'm not. I, I gave up on that after I came back from Melbourne, after I'd been in an environment with people who reinforced the value of my preoccupations and my passions. And so now I'm sure in myself. And so I can be sure wherever I am. But I'm really, really happy, and especially during COVID-19 lockdown, nothing like being there rather than locked up in a flat in Spain or somewhere. Um, so I feel really grateful to have to be in a space. But who knows how long that will work. Mm-hmm. Just finally, the, you were one of the other big changes that's you know happened in the last while is that you were diagnosed with ovarian cancer last year. And I'm just wondering if that kind of, brush with your own mortality shifted even more your understanding of what home and belonging is I mean you kind of finished the final edits on the book as you were having treatment so I'm just wondering how you feel that might have informed the book I think possibly the book informed my the way I handled life last year during my treatment I think the um the great benefit of having found home inside myself is that I felt yeah, okay, bring it on, folks. <laughs> I'm all right. I can cope. I'm, I've got my, I know my strength and I I trust myself and trust Jen immensely too, but I trust myself to manage things. So yes, um, cancer is increases one sense of precariousness, I think, um, which I think is there for everyone. And I think these COVID times have possibly reinforced that for people that we are all at risk in some way, shape or form, whether it's from governments who are draconian or environmental disasters, which we're all facing with climate change, or whether we are unsafe in some other way. Um, And so I'm grateful in a way that I've had the strength from what I've learned through these last years um, and the challenge of living in a very different environment to teach me that. Um, And I feel like I've come through and so hopefully I can handle whatever this cancer uh, business <laughs> throws at me next. Mm. Thank you, Hayley. It's Thank been you, such a Sam. pleasure talking to you about Untethered. Thank you it's so a much. beautiful book. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com.